So, uh, like Mir said, I'm Rocky. Uh, a little bit about me, I'm from Texas. Woo! Yeah, anyone from Texas? I think, I know Matthew's from Texas. Texas, yes. The great state of Texas, that's where I'm from. So I was born and raised uh, in Texas, went all through high school in a small town called Seminole. And uh, after I graduated high school, I went on to Rama Bible Training College uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was there for two years. Uh, my second year there, I met my beautiful wife, Ashley. I'll give her a hand. Yes. And uh, I loved her so much, I followed her here to North Carolina. So that's why I'm here today. Uh-oh. And uh, got plugged into the church. We actually found out about uh, Victory Church through Rama. Uh, we found out that when Pastor Hagen traveled with his team, he came to this church, and that's what Ashley found out online. That's how we started coming here, and we got plugged in right away. And here we are today. Here I am, standing here in front of you. So that's just a little bit about me. I want to open tonight just by giving you a quote. Um, I don't know if any of you know Georgian Banov, but he gave this amazing quote that I found. And uh, it says, if we're not set free from sin until we die, then Jesus isn't our Savior. Death is. So something to think about. It's really grab you there. So Obviously, no one is perfect. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. No one will ever be perfect. But it's something that we're always going to strive for as, our, as a Christian, as followers of God. Um, personally, I struggle with anger a lot of time, whether that be in the car or a competitive anger like basketball, volleyball games. Um, to give you a little story, when I played basketball in high school, I had a teammate who got so angry uh, one of the games, I think they, he got called a foul, and he didn't think he fouled. He got really upset. He was kind of a hothead. And so those little pads that are behind the basketball goal to protect some of the players, whether they're for their momentum that they have carrying with them, he punched one as hard as he could, and it was a really thin pad. So he ends up punching it. I think it actually fell loose and fell down, and his hand almost swelled up immediately. And I thought to myself, what an idiot. Like, how are you going to be so mad that you're just going to punch practically a wall? Because there was no cushion there. It was just a wall behind a little piece of foam. And he, he broke his hand. He couldn't play the rest of the game. Well, silly me, five years later, here I am at Rama. I'm playing a volleyball game. And uh, I'm very competitive the game is not going my way. We're playing an undefeated team who we should have been beating. I'm pretty sure I just spiked the ball. It went out of bounds. I was furious. I shouldn't be playing the way I was playing. I turn around. There's a pole in front of me there. It's one of the support beams to this big balcony. I turn around. And I just, boom. Same thing. Almost immediately, my hand starts to swell up. I got two more volleyball games to play. It was not a good night by any means. And so, while maybe to myself that may not be sin in itself, like I'm not attacking anyone, I'm doing myself more hurt than anything else, but if this anger goes unchecked, this is I think right about the time me and Ashley started dating, this anger going unchecked, what if me and Ashley are playing a board game? Monopoly. We'll just throw Monopoly out there because that destroys friendships, right? Monopoly and sorry. So, Say we're playing Monopoly, and on this rare occasion, 
Ashley beats me. No, just kidding. She, we probably go about 50-50, maybe. Um, but say she beats me, and if my anger from the past, these small little bits from uh, sports that I've carried on, if not gone unche- unchecked, what if I lash out at Ashley? Maybe not physically, I would never hit Ashley. I would never do that. But what if I lash out verbally? It's like, oh, I hate you. And even if it's out of fun, you know, words cut deep, like fun or not, words are effective. They can bring life or death, right? So we know in Proverbs. And so, is it possible to live without sin? Absolutely yes. No one is perfect, and like we said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it's something we're supposed to strive for. And like Jesus said when... Uh, the rich young ruler came to him, and that whole story, at the end, his disciples said, then who then can be saved? But And Jesus said, with man all things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. So if you guys want to go with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 14, uh, I have this in the Passion Translation, uh, if you're able to access that with your tablets or your phone. And, uh, We'll start in verse 14, we'll read through 16, and uh, just kind of hold your place there in Romans, because we'll go back and forth to it a few times here and there. So in verse 14 it says, Remember this, sin will not conquer you, for God already has. You are not governed by law, but governed by the reign of the grace of God. What are we to do then? Should we sin to our heart's content, since there's no law to condemn us anymore? What a terrible thought. Don't you realize that grace frees you to choose your own master? But choose carefully, for you surrender yourself to become a servant, bound to the one you choose to obey. And if you choose to love sin, it will become your master, and it will own you, and your reward will be death. But if you choose to love and obey God, he will lead you into perfect righteousness. So number one for you guys Grace empowers you to change. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our sin, our past is completely gone. We have been made righteous through Christ Jesus. There's nothing more that you can do to become more righteous, to become less righteous. When we are saved, we are righteous, period. That's what it is. So grace is getting, a, is getting what you don't deserve. It is unmerited favor It is the strength to live a sanctified and holy life. So another area, I said I struggle with anger, so another area of of anger that I've been dealing with for a long time is my road rage. Does anyone here have road rage? Yes, okay. That's something I struggled with. Ashley can tell you story upon story. She she does this thing. When I get kind of angry, she just just looks down, she grabs the side door, and... (laughs) But... Anyways, um, it's something I've struggled with for a long time. And so when I see a driver that's driving really reckless, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, don't be, you're stupid. Like, why are you driving like that? Or someone cuts me off and I'm calling them names. And recently God has been convicting me of that. And it's, he's completely started to change the way I drive. And I know it kind of sounds kind of silly, but, you know, it, we can't be calling people names. We can't call someone stupid. We can't call someone an idiot who God has made in the image of himself, who he has called blessed, who he loves. He can't call 
we can't call children of God an idiot because God didn't create idiots. He didn't create anyone to be stupid. So, that being said, I'm, I'm convicted and I'm starting, I got to the point to where I call someone a name and immediately the Holy Spirit quickens me. It's like, no, I repent, God, I'm sorry. You're not stupid, you're driving stupid, if that's any, <laughs> if that's any better, right? So, that, that was my starting point. You're not stupid, you're driving stupid. So, I thought that was a little better in my mind, but, you know, there's still a little work to be done. So, people tend to confuse grace with mercy sometimes, but mercy is not getting what you deserve, which is death, hell, and the grave. Thank God for Jesus that we do not have to have any of that. So grace empowers us to be like God, both in word, in thoughts, and in our actions. So through the new birth, we have been made holy, and we're now set apart in a higher, to a higher calling and a higher standard. A few weeks ago, Pastor Mitch talked about the prayer of consecration, and he explained the prayer of consecration is not a prayer of faith, but a prayer more of hope, a prayer of God, if it be your will, or God, what is your will, or God, help me align myself to your will. And that's the prayer of consecration. It's a prayer saying, I submit my will to yours, God. So back to Romans, we're going to go to verse 17, and it says, And God is pleased with you, for in the past you were servants of sin, but now your obedience is heart deep, and your life is being molded by truth through the teaching that you are devoted to, the teaching of the word. Verse 18, And now you celebrate your freedom from your former master's sin. You've left its bondage, and now God's perfect righteousness holds power over you as his loving servant. So number two, the word of God brings a heart change. There's something about it. Once we receive that righteousness from the new birth, there's something inside of us now that's going to start changing the way we act, this changing the way we speak, changing the way we live life. So in other words, righteousness given to us in the new birth deals with your character, the inner man. So back to my road rage stories. Um, I'm getting to the point where I'm catching myself. I'm starting to repent after every time I say, and now I'm getting to the point God's starting to change me on the inside. Now when I see these people are driving crazy, hopefully it's never any of you, But if it is, I will say, I started praying for these people. So immediately, as soon as I start seeing people, someone cuts me off, and I'm agitated, but, and it started with a, God bless you, like in this kind of angry terms, like, God loves you, and it started that way. But now it's turned even into someone cuts me off and say, God bless that person I pray the protection over them as they're driving. I pray for the protection of everyone else because everyone else is going to need it. <laughs> so, and that's what it's turned into. So I can, I can stay calm. I can say, God, that's not going to affect my day. That's not going to affect my next hour. When I get home, I don't have to be upset. I can greet Ashley with a smile when I get home from work. And uh, it's not going to ruin my day. And... Uh, that's what I've done. I, I pray over them for protection, that he will bless them. And so in 1 Corinthians, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, 
it says, and because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So like I said earlier, there's nothing you can do after you're saved, after you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There's nothing more you can do to become more righteous, but rather what we should do as Jesus begins to change our heart, it's a process of sanctification. So sanctification in practical or just normal terms is uh, the process of living out your righteousness. So it's not practicing a life of sin out of flesh, but it's practicing your righteousness. So living life without sin. And in 1 Corinthians, you go a few chapters over to chapter 10. Uh, It's also, Paul also says it in chapter 6, that uh, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. He says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. That was in the NIV. And Paul, he's the one saying that, and he's a perfect example of this heart change. So here Paul was, he thinks... He's on this righteous quest. He's going to go and get rid of every Christian. He's going to go put, throw them in jail. He's going to murder them. He thinks he has a righteous cause. But on that day when he went, he was on his road to Damascus, and he had that encounter with God that completely changed his mind, his will, his emotions. He did a complete 180 for God, and now he became the apostle we know him the radical, devoted follower of Jesus that we know him as today. And so, life, Paul, having been made righteous, then carried on the life of sanctification. He was made righteous during his encounter, then lived out sanctification. So God now looks at you. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus because of his work on the cross. Not only does he take away the sins of your past, he takes away the shame that came with it and everything else. Like, you don't have to worry. You can come before a holy God who is perfect in all his ways and stand there as if you have never done anything wrong. So, also, with a heart change, so we get the word heart from the uh, Greek word cardia. It's where we get the word cardio, cardiology, cardiologist. And the heart means the effective center of our being, the capacity of moral preference, the desire producer that makes us tick, our desire decisions that establish who we really are. So who we really are on the inside, the inner man. That's what the heart is. When you see heart reference in the Bible, it's usually talking about your spirit man or your inner man, the person at your core being. And in Leviticus, Um, God is speaking to Moses, but speaking about Aaron. It says to Aaron, who was the high priest, you are to be distinguished between holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So Aaron was the high priest, but how many know we're all priests, right? We're all called to be set apart, to be holy. We're all called to go and teach, to preach the gospel, right? And so, that is what being sanctified, that is the process of sanctification, to be set apart, to live a life consecrated to God, and to follow his will, not our will. So, one more time, we're going to go back to Romans 
And this time we're going to be skipped down a few verses into verse 22. It says, But now, as God's loving servants, you will live in joyous freedom from the power of sin. So consider the benefits you now enjoy. You are brought into a deeper, you are brought deeper into the experience of true holiness that ends with eternal life. For sin's meager wages of death, but God lavishes, but God's lavish gift is eternal found in your union with our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One. And we're going to go down a few more verses in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. When we were merely living natural lives, the law, through defining sin, actually awakened sinful desires within us, which resulted in bearing the fruit of death. But, I mean, like the buts of the Bible, right? We have but God in Ephesians, right? We have, we've done all these things. We were living a life of sin, bearing the fruit of death, but now that we have been fully released from the power of the law, we are dead to what once controlled us, and our lives are no longer motivated by obsolete ways to follow, obsolete ways of following the written code, so that now we may serve God by living in the freshness of a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, point number three, there is a new way to live. Righteousness through Jesus makes it a joy to change and to fellowship with God. To quote John Bevere in his book, Bait of Satan, he said, A slave is one who has to serve, but a servant is one who lives to serve. So, a relationship with Jesus takes us from a merit-driven life to a life motivated by love. To be a servant is to live to serve, but a slave is someone who has to serve. So when we were a slave to the law, we had to abide by every law, and it was almost like a merit-driven salvation. You had to go, you had to live uh, by all these laws, and when you did sin, you had to go to a priest, you had to slaughter a lamb, a goat, sheep, whatever it might be, uh, according to that specific law that you've broken. They had so many rules um, I think we talked about it a little bit at Men's Coffee. They had over 600 laws uh, in the uh, Old Testament, and the book of Leviticus is full of them. It's a really fun read if you ever uh, wanted to read uh, Leviticus. I read it recently. It's a great book. So thankful for Jesus that we do not have to do any of that anymore. So a relationship with Jesus takes us from a merit-driven life to a life motivated by love. So where do you see yourself living right now? Do you feel like you have to obey God? Do you feel like he doesn't really love or accept you? Uh, Or do you desire to live differently because there's a relationship with a living and a loving God? When we walk in in a desire to live differently, because of the relationship inside of us with a loving God, we begin to naturally walk out the calling God has placed on our life. So, Ephesians 4 says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called. And one of our our callings is, first, one of the commandments Jesus gave to us when a lawyer approached him and says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment above anything else. We are to love God with all our heart, our soul, and all our mind. And out of that love for God, everything else 
will fall into place. See, Jesus uh, decided to give us a second commandment. He said, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But if we just have that relationship with God, if we truly love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind, the rest will be taken care of. We're, if we're going to love God, we're going to love our neighbor too. If we love God, we're going to love those who are agitated, or who agitate us. If we love God, we're going to love those who do wrong to us. So, another thing that we've all been called to do is the Great Commission. You all know the Great Commission, right? We're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to make disciples. And so, what you'll find is that the greatest commandment fuels the Great Commission. So, when we love God first, going to all the world and preaching the gospel will come naturally to us as Christians. And so, but before we can get to the world, like we said, we're talking about heart change. We're talking about uh, living a sanctified life. So how can we reach the world if we can't reach our social life? If we can't reach our neighborhood. We can't reach our community. We can't reach our workplace. If we're not making a difference in those areas, when we do finally reach, uh, get to someone who's lost, truly lost, how are we supposed to make an impact on their life if we can't even make an impact in our workplace? Or even further, if we're not making a difference domestically, if we're not making a difference in our own family, how are we then supposed to make a difference in the workplace? And you can take it even one more step further. How are we supposed to make a difference in our family when we ourselves aren't living the way we ought to live? So it goes in that order. We have to first take care of ourselves, our character. And once we deal with our character, our inner man, that's when we can influence our family. That's when we can influence our spouse, our kids. And once we get to that level, then we can get to our workplace. Now the workplace, maybe they know some of your family. They see the influence you have with your family, so now you have influence in the workplace. And after your workplace, now you can go maybe to your neighborhood, your community, other places. You see someone at the grocery store every day. It's like, that's your community. You now have an influence with your community. And then from there, now we can reach the lost. Because the lost is the ultimate goal. So it all starts with ourselves, our inner man. And so in that way, the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us fuels the great commission. So if you act like the world, don't be surprised when the world judges you, when the world rejects you, because they don't see a difference between you and them. And so Jesus, what he did is he gave us the answer to life. He had his Sermon on the Mount, and we find out that Jesus gave us the answer, but he also is the answer and we'll see that a little bit later. So we see in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks to us about just life. He's, he talks about, there's the Beatitudes, and then he goes into a wide range of teachings, uh, touching on anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, or revenge, enemies, giving, prayer, fasting. And he goes on and on. If you just read Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, you'll see how Jesus wants us to live life. And Jesus actually, uh, in the subject of revenge or retaliation, Jesus actually quotes Leviticus again, that fun book we talked about earlier. He quotes in uh, chapter 24, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life 
if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. And this is where Jesus quotes it, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be done to him. And that was the way they used to do things. So Jesus, the people of that time, they knew of the law. They knew what was right from wrong, what they were supposed to do. And they were told in the law that they can give eye for eye. They can give tooth for tooth. But Jesus said it. But I say to you, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. If someone sues you for your jacket, give them your shirt too, essentially is what he's saying. He's calling us to a higher standard. He's changing the way that they saw life back then. It was completely backwards for them. He said to love your enemies, pray for those who hurt you. Because even the sinner, even the tax collector can love those who love them, right? Even, even those who have done wrong, they can love their best friends. They can love the people who like them back, right? But Jesus said we're called to a higher standard. You're supposed to love those who hate you. And it completely changed the way that completely changed the way that they saw life and the law. And Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 6, uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, he wraps it up with, a tree can't produce bad fruit, a good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good, produce, a good person produces good things, from the treasury of their heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. So it is our inner man, it is our heart that produces fruit, which is our actions. So what's on the inside will ultimately show up on the outside through our actions, through our words, through our motives. And so we all know fruit of the Spirit, right? We have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Some uh, theologians or some Bible people, I forget, what's the word I'm looking for? Scholars, Bible scholars. Some of them uh, take that text in Galatians and they say, they, they translate it this way, love, the fruit of the Spirit is first love, and then as a byproduct of love, we have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because you can have all those things and still not love, but none of these things can exist with love. Without love. Sorry, I said that wrong. None of those things can exist without love. So if you love, those things will automatically follow, but you can maybe have some of the few. You can be good. You can be faithful. You can have joy occasionally, right? But if you have love, those things will all automatically follow. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, it says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Uh, verse 11 is my favorite part. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. It is through Jesus that we can become filled with fruit of righteousness. He has to become the foundation on which we build life. And speaking of foundations, uh, Jesus asks his disciples in Matthew, you know, who 
do you say I am? He first, well, first he asks, who do others say that I am? And some say, oh, you are this and that. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And they're a bit silent for a little bit. They're not sure how to respond. Maybe they hadn't thought of it before. But then Simon, he speaks up, Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, not that Peter is the rock, but on this rock, the foundational truth that Jesus is the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A cool little thing here, I think I've shared this with some of the guys on staff. The gates of hell, isn't it interesting how he uses the word gates? A gate in war or in a city is used for defense. Have you ever noticed that before? So the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means we are supposed to be on the offense as believers, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against us through the truth that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul uh, just really nails that in for us. It says, for no one, 1 Corinthians 3.11, the New Translation, New Living Translation says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount And he's talking about foundations. He says, there's a man who builds his house on the sand and one who builds his house on solid ground. And in verse 24 and 25, I have the God's Word translation here for you guys. It says, he is like a person who dug down to bedrock to lay the foundation of his home. And when the floods came, the floodwaters pushed against the house, but the house couldn't be washed away because it had a good foundation. And I like the, the use of the word bedrock. So maybe you've heard the term, um, I've hit rock bottom, bedrock. I've, when, when you hear someone say, I've hit rock bottom, as a believer, for us, that means we are now closer to, the, closer to Jesus than we have ever been. Once you've hit rock bottom, you are now right next to our foundation, which is Jesus Christ. When you hit rock bottom and you're next to Jesus now, the only way you can go is back up. So the beauty of Jesus and who he is, when we hit rock bottom, because of the foundational truth that he is our foundation, our bedrock, um, there's no other way we can go but up. If Jesus is not our foundation, if he's not your foundation, your will, your motive, you will eventually burn out or fail it's all about Jesus because he is all and he is in all. I found uh, this to be true for myself. Uh, when I moved to Rhema, I really wanted to be part of a band. Uh, I played drums for the worship team, um, mostly on Wednesday nights. And uh, when I went to Rhema, all I wanted to do was play the drums. I had to find somewhere I can get connected and play the drums. And I found that I was doing it out of my own desire. I found that when I finally did get the opportunity with a young adults group, um, I found that I enjoyed myself at first, but because Jesus was not my motive, Jesus was not the reason for me wanting to be in a band, that desire slowly turned into, I have to go here again, 
I have to serve again. And I started to burn out. I started to burn out because my motives weren't in the right place to begin with. So when I say that Jesus has to be your will, your motive, he has to be at the center of it all because that's when we will work out of excellence. That's when we won't get burned out. That's when we will able to do all the things that God has called us to do. So once you've come to the realization that it's not about you, that you can't do this on, you can't do it on your own, that's when God can look at you and he says, I can work with that. When you finally get to the place where you say, it's not about me, I need God to do this, that's when God can work with that humble heart. He is always willing to forgive a sincere heart. So when you do hit rock bottom, when you've sinned and you feel like you've messed up and all these good works maybe that you've done, you feel like all that is for nothing now. And you've hit rock bottom. But the word says, John says, that God is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want to challenge you guys. So how can grace empower us to live? And one last verse for you guys. If you go to John chapter 15, grace empowers us to live because we are the branches of the true vine, and Jesus is that vine, right? So we see in verse 5, it says, Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So apart from God, we don't have that empowering grace. We don't have that empowerment to live that life of sanctification, to live out our righteousness. And if we go on, it says in number uh, verse 6, Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered up and burned to the pile. So, point number two, action point number two, how can I live out of my heart change? Well, that is found in verse 7. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for, what, for anything you want, and it will be given to you. To maintain that life of heart change, you have to be connected to the true vine. You have to be constantly connected to Jesus. You not only have to be a hearer of the word, but also a doer of the word. And that's how we live out that heart change, by receiving that grace, praying daily for that grace from God to live out that life of, uh, that life of sanctification. And number three, living a life in God's grace will produce fruit consistent with righteousness. It says in verse 8, When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to the Father. So by staying connected to the vine, continue to hear the word, continue to do the word, you will find that you will produce fruit when you are connected to that vine. If we're not connected to the vine, we're cut off, we're thrown away into the fire, right? But if we remain connected to the vine, that is when we can produce the fruit. That's when we can live out our righteousness and produce the actions, the fruit of a sanctified life.